Uh, there's one photo coming up that uh, we'll just put up. Uh, Master and Commander. That's uh, a great movie. Uh, Russell Crowe stars as Captain Jack Aubrey. Two and a half hours, we follow his adventures across the high seas. I don't know if you knew, I didn't. Uh, the movie's based on a series of books by Patrick O'Brien, and there's 20 books in the series. And what they've done with this one movie is they've basically crammed as much of those novels into one movie as they could. And uh, it apparently gives you a fairly good taste of the books. Uh, well, today's passage from Mark's Gospel is something similar. It's a set of sea stories. Uh, they're all centred around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is the hero. And uh, as best we can tell, they all happen over one day or at least over two days. And these stories are a summary as well. Uh, they're a summary of the Kingdom of God. Uh, when Jesus first arrived, he said that the Kingdom of God was near. And the more we see Jesus at work, the more we see God's kingdom arriving. And we see all of that, all those things that he's been doing, concentrated together in this section today. It's a summary, but it's also a foretaste, an entree, a window into the future. Because these events point to a much greater reality to the day when God will bring this world to an end and bring in a new heavens and a new earth. And that's when God's kingdom will fully arrive. That day will be a time when the chaotic, scary forces of the sea, of the ocean, will be conquered. When sickness and suffering and Satan will finally be defeated once and for all. What we see Jesus doing in these stories gives us hope. Hope that the mess that the world is in will one day be fixed up. Hope that gives us the strength to keep going through that mess, to keep working towards that day. If Jesus could do it then, then we can be confident, we can be hopeful that he'll do it in the future. So let's look at this highlight reel together. Uh, I've called it a set of super sea stories of the Saviour's sovereignty. Uh, story number one is about storms. Verse 35, Jesus' long day rolls on. It's getting late. He finishes his parable about the kingdom. That's chapter four. Uh, he's teaching people from the boat. Uh, they're lined along the shore to hear him. At the end of the day, Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. They're already in the boat. They push off. They start sailing. But as night falls, the shoreline disappears and a storm comes up. Must have been some storm. Even the disciples who were fishermen thought they were going to drown. Where is Jesus? It's hard to imagine how it's possible, but in the midst of the ferocious storm, in the midst of the commotion and the chaos and the confusion, in the midst of the disciples shouting at one another and bailing for all they're worth, Jesus slept. A few years ago, a friend visited Tasmania. Uh, he caught the boat over between uh, the ship, the Spirit of Tasmania, between Melbourne and Devonport. He was a little bit nervous once they cleared Port Phillip Bay because the ocean swell started to come up and the boat started to roll and started to pitch and his dinner started to move up and down in his stomach. So to take his mind off it, he thought he'd go and see a movie. 
Now, you may find this hard to believe, but the movie they were showing was Titanic. <laughs> you think someone would have thought about it, wouldn't you? Uh, my friend said he didn't sleep too well that night. Every creak and every groan made him jump and maybe he was dreaming of icebergs. Perhaps my friend wasn't trusting God as he should. If he'd been trusting God, maybe he would have slept better. Jesus trusted, as uh, slept because he trusted God. So imagine the scene. The disciples are fighting the waves and the wind and at first maybe they don't even notice Jesus. But then someone does. Hey, look at Jesus. He's asleep. Can you believe that? Hey, teacher, wake up. Don't you care if we drown? Now they wake Jesus up and I wonder what they expected him to do. My guess is probably to pick up a bucket and help with the bailing. But what does Jesus do instead? He stands up and says, quiet, be still. And no sooner has Jesus spoken than the wind stops, the waves die down and it's completely calm. Have you ever tried to stop a storm? Waves don't listen to your voice because you don't have the authority. Imagine you're driving along and in the distance you see a man standing in the middle of the road. You keep driving, you assume he'll keep walking and uh, be off the road by the time you get there. Uh, But as you get closer, he's still standing there. And you start to think, what's going on? And you you think, well, he'll obviously move. My car's bigger than he is. But then he holds up his white-gloved hand and you recognise the uniform of a policeman and you slam on the brakes. You stop because he has the authority. And it's the same with Jesus and the storm. Jesus has the authority. Jesus made the wind and the water. It's Jesus who controls them. The storm recognises him. The disciples should have as well. Verse 40, Jesus rebukes them. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You've seen me heal people. You've heard me talk about who I am. Haven't you learned? Don't you know who I am yet? And just to show how accurate Jesus is in his assessment of them, they come back with a question. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The bizarre thing is, it doesn't say they were scared during the storm, but it says they were terrified during the calm. Who is this man? It's a question Mark leaves hanging. It's a question he wants us to be asking. This man who controls the wind and the waves, who brings calm out of chaos, who brings in God's kingdom. And Mark keeps us looking for the answer. Well, the disciples may think they've deserved an easy day to make up for the night, uh, but they're in for a shock. Things will just get weirder. Story number two, verse one of chapter five. They arrive, they make it to the other side of the lake. It's probably early morning. The the, The sun is starting to come up. They're cold, wet, tired and hungry. They can't wait to be on solid ground again. They glide in towards the shore. It doesn't look familiar. Perhaps they've been blown off course and landed in Gentile territory. But they can make out some dark shapes on the cliff line. Just as the bottom of the boat scrapes the sand, they recognise the dark shapes as burial caves. Great, we've landed in a cemetery. 
But before they can think too much about that, a man starts running down the slope towards the boat. A wild man. Hair everywhere, naked, broken chains hanging from his wrists and ankles. Perhaps the disciples think about jumping straight back into the boat. The storm was tough, but maybe it's not such a bad bad idea after all to be back out on the lake. Verse 7, the man screams at Jesus, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Do you notice the disciples ask the question, Who is this man? And the demoniac answers, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Don't torture me, he begs. The name of the unclean spirit is Legion because there are so many demons. But being outnumbered means nothing to Jesus. He is the stronger man who beats up the strong man. Legion is no match for him. The demons beg Jesus. And Jesus casts them into a herd of pigs. Every Bible study I've been in this week, there's been one person at least whose reaction was, what about the poor pigs? Verse 13, the pigs rush down into the water and they drown. The forces of Satan are destroyed in the lake, the lake Jesus conquered the night before. Verse 14, the people looking after the pigs disappear back into town to tell everyone what's happened. By the time they arrive back, there are no sign of the pigs, perhaps just a few bubbles rising from the surface of the lake. But what they do see is the crazy man. Someone's found him some clothes. Instead of running around screaming, he's sitting with Jesus, quiet and still, calm and gentle, just like the storm. And verse 17, their reaction is to be afraid. Same as the disciples after the storm. In the calmness, there's fear. They used to be scared of the demon-possessed man, but now one who's stronger than him has arrived. And they're more scared. And in verse 17, they plead with Jesus to leave, to get back into his boat, go back where he came from. But just as they're about to leave, it's the turn of the man to do some pleading of his own. Verse 18. The townsfolk beg Jesus to leave. The man begs to come with Jesus. In fact, the demons beg Jesus as well. Everyone is begging Jesus. This is someone with power to do things. But instead, Jesus tells the man to go and tell his family what God's done for him. Tell the family, clean has replaced unclean. Joy has replaced sorrow. Peace has replaced pain. And it's a sign of things to come. So, verse 21, Jesus hops in the boat, he crosses back to the other side, probably somewhere near where he left the day before because there's a large crowd that gathers immediately as he lands. Uh, It's now time for story three. Out of all the crowd, there's one man with a special motivation. His daughter is dying. And I can say, with two daughters, there's something about a father and a daughter. We We will do almost anything. He's willing to do anything. He's willing to humiliate himself before the whole town. 
And that's what he does. He's the synagogue ruler. He's the top dog. He's used to everyone giving him respect. But verse 23, he falls at Jesus' feet, pleads with Jesus. Someone else begging. Begging from the one with the power to do something about it. Jesus says yes, verse 24. Now imagine Jairus, his daughter is in a bad way. Hours to live. The last thing he needs are delays. But things are slow. The crowd is milling around. And it's all taking too long. He's getting nervous. But during the trip, Mark zooms in on another personality. Someone else who needs Jesus desperately. Someone else who'll do almost anything. She suffered continual menstrual bleeding for 12 years. Awful. And if that's not bad enough, she's broke because she spent every cent she has on doctors. But their cures are worse than the problem. Verse 26, she suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and it's just getting worse. But if that wasn't enough... She's treated like a leper by anyone who knows her. There's the social rejection, even by her her own family, because that's what the law says. She's unclean. So this woman is desperate. She's so desperate, she does the unthinkable. She sneaks up behind Jesus in the midst of the bustling crowd and she touches his cloak. It'll make him unclean, but she figures it's worth the risk because she'll be healed. And the very instant she does, the bleeding stops and she knows in herself that she's been healed. And in the midst of all the other bodies bumping Jesus, this one touch has faith and the miracle is done. But Jesus also knows in himself that power has gone out from him. And when he finds her, she's still scared. Verse 33... She's petrified that he'll be angry at her, that that she's made him unclean. But what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, your touch has made me unclean, but your faith has healed you. It's not uncleanness that's contagious. It's cleanness which is contagious. Clean has replaced unclean. Mercy has replaced suffering. And it's a sign of things to come, a window into the future. But what about Jairus? I'm guessing he's getting impatient, he's moving from foot to foot, he's uh, rattling his keys, you know, whatever, drumming his fingers. While Jesus is still speaking to the woman, some people come up to Jairus and he can tell it's bad news from the looks on their faces. Verse 35. They say, don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter is dead. Sickness, that's one thing. We can believe that. But death, well, that's just a whole new level. There's no one who can defeat death. That's their thinking. But Jesus draws Jairus' attention back to himself. Don't listen to them, he says. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Fear and belief. Fear is what the disciples had in the storm. And Jesus wanted instead belief. 
It's the same here. Don't be afraid. Believe. They get to Jairus' house. There's a crowd. They're acting as if someone's just died. But in verse 39, Jesus tells them that they've got it all wrong. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And they laugh at him. Everyone knows what death looks like. They see it enough. There's no one strong enough to defeat death. It'll claim everyone. But they don't know Jesus. They don't know that reversing death for him is no more difficult than waking someone up. He puts everyone out of the house except for the family and his closest friends. And then he does two things. They're two very simple things. He takes hold of her hand and he says two words. Little girl, get up. Just like you or I may wake up our daughter in the morning. Anyone could do them. But what makes them special is that the girl isn't just sleeping. She's dead. Jesus touches a dead body. Dead bodies make you unclean. Other people run a mile from it and Jesus touches her. But what's even more special is what happens next. He says the word and verse 42, she gets up. Now if Jesus hadn't addressed the command to the little girl, then perhaps tombs all over town would be springing open and there'd be all sorts of other dead people as well who'd be rising. That's how powerful Jesus' word is. Little girl, get up. It doesn't say she was raised to life. It doesn't say she was resurrected. She just gets up. Because according to Jesus, she was only sleeping. To raise someone to life is as easy for Jesus as waking them up. Once again, uncleanness is not contagious, but cleanness is contagious. Cleanness flows. Cleanness rep- clean replaces unclean. Life replaces death. Joy replaces despair. It's a sign of things to come. A window into the future. Joy instead of sorrow. It's the type of joy we feel at a Christian funeral, isn't it? Now, now there's sorrow, there's despair, there's sadness. But it's sadness for those of us who are left behind. There's joy for the person who's with the Lord because they're only sleeping. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. We celebrate resurrection life. Our brother or sister is where they belong. They're with their saviour. We grieve with hope because our brother or sister has been let in on the future kingdom early. They're in paradise with Jesus. Now in a sense, we've been let in early on the future kingdom as well. These verses give us that glimpse into the future. They've shown us the kingdom of God. A kingdom where chaos and disorder have been destroyed where clean replaces unclean, where life replaces death, where joy replaces sorrow, where peace replaces pain. If you flip over to Revelation 21, if you can do that quickly, do that. It's the second last page of the Bible, Revelation 21. Listen to what that future 
reality will be like. Listen to this description of the kingdom of God. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. But this is not a pipe dream. It's not some unreal hope that you hold on to to get you through the night. This, this is ultimate reality. What we're living now is the virtual reality. It's the fake world. This is the temporary. God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom is true. God's kingdom is good. And it's coming soon. And we can be sure of it because Jesus has shown us. He's proved that he can do it. He's proved that God will make good on his promise. But I want to make sure that we understand what Jesus is doing here. It's only a preview. It's not the start of the main event. Jesus has given us a peek into his kingdom. It's begun, but it's not fully here yet. The theologians say it's been inaugurated, but not consummated. Now, if we get this wrong, we start to mix our times up. The truth is, Jesus does promise us complete physical healing. He does promise us complete physical healing. He does promise us complete victory over sin, complete fellowship with God, a complete experience of his spirit. But not yet. Only then. Jesus' miracles in these verses don't guarantee that he'll fix up all our problems now, but they do guarantee that he will one day. One day will be perfect and heaven and earth will be perfect when the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more pain or death or mourning or crying. The old order of things has passed away. That's our hope. That's our goal. That's something... To something worth living joyfully for now, isn't it? And Jesus' actions here give us the hope, the solid confidence to do that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great stories. They're a great story, but they're far more than that. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to trust him as we experience some of these things in our lives some of the pain and the despair and the hopelessness. Uh, help us to trust Jesus. Uh, help us to look forward to your wonderful promises and live expectantly and faithfully as we wait for, those, for that day. Amen.